Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am Shane Moss. I'm back doing my first podcast in like a month. I've been, I mean, to you guys listening, I, I banked episodes and stuff. You won't know this, but I, I haven't, uh, I, I banked a bunch up. I've been traveling. I've been exploring um, what my future is going to look like in terms of touring and where I'm going to live and that sort of thing. I've had a break from the show and I feel refreshed and excited. And I'm here with, uh, What's really fun about doing this podcast and and finding a bunch of uh, academics in so many different fields um, and and just, you know, I started the show, I was touring and I just look up random people at universities and be like, hey, will you come on my podcast? Your work looks interesting. And what's cool about that is sometimes uh, I've I've had a non-trivial number of people on this show that it's their very first podcast ever, and today is uh, is that case. Adam Wilcox is joining me today. Thank you, Adam, for joining me. Welcome to your first podcast. We're doing it. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Shane. This is this is better. Listen, I sit in on a lot of like virtual conferences and stuff. I take a lot of like online classes and everything, and. This is way easier. You don't need to have a PowerPoint presentation. You don't you don't even need to be correct about things. We could just wing things. It's uh it's it's super fun. I I love doing this show and I I love uh having casual conversations with scientists. Can you tell people a little bit about your background and what you do? Hey, sure. Well, currently I'm here at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm a research associate professor. I'm in the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries, and also in the Smith Center for International Sustainable Agriculture. And I do quite a bit of teaching, and some of it related to One Health, this concept of One Health, of humans and the environment and animal health. But really, my passion is, uh, is conservation. So I haven't been involved in conservation my entire career since I left school back at UVA. I've traveled the world to Cameroon and Tanzania and, and just came to UT recently about eight years ago. And found a really good place where I could raise my family, um, share some of my experience with, with students that I've had from all my adventures abroad, and then continue some of my research as well. So I've got research projects in Central America and Sub-Saharan Africa still. So it's kind of a neat thing, academia for me. I didn't really expect I was going to like it, per se, because I spent so much time away from it. And I spent many, many years between all my degrees. Um, but actually, it's a good fit. Uh, it's a good fit for me and a good fit for my family. Well, that's that is fantastic. I it actually goes perfectly into something. This is one of the first things that I wanted to ask you anyway, and you led right into it by talking about the adventures that you've been on, mm-hmm. um, because I I know you've you've got to go abroad a bunch in your career and and uh, spend time with uh, with with cultures you know very very different and a lot more diverse than uh, a lot of uh, us Americans are are used to. And I wanted to ask you. In terms of 
Well, I was kind of wondering how you got into it, and I wanted to ask you what moved what more was it like your passion for science or was it like oh this would be a cool idea <laughs> was it the was it the adventure side of things or was it a blend of both or it was how, it was definitely the adventure side of things i'd say shane so i i, um, yeah. I went to the university of virginia undergrad and i did degrees in environmental science and then english language and literature uh really weird mix but I did have sort of a plan to my madness. I was going to go into environmental law. So I figured that was the way I could affect change and uh, you know, conservation policy and that sort of stuff. I'm from a very small town in rural Virginia. We still don't have a stoplight. I think population is like 500. It's a town called Scottsville, Virginia. And I went to school at University of Virginia, which was our big city. It's not a very big city at all, but it's right up the road. Um, but as I was finishing up my undergrad, I was like, I'm not sure if I want to go and clerk and do the whole law understudy thing in D.C. and then go into law school. So I just by chance was walking back to my apartment one day and I saw a, uh, an open session for um, for the U.S. Peace Corps to, to learn information about becoming a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer. And I dropped in. I was like, this sounds really cool. I had not really been out of the country aside from the Bahamas before then. And uh, wanted to explore the world and didn't, you know, figure to learn a little bit about what the Peace Corps is doing. I was like, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring there. I could take my LSAT book with me, I guess, and study overseas. Um, and I got accepted in the Peace Corps. And I was uh, I got on a met a group of my peers in Washington D.C. We got a bunch of shots and inoculations and flew across the pond to Cameroon, Central Africa. Um, I brought my LSAT book with me. I never opened it up. Never cracked the page. <laughs> uh, it said in the provincial capital. And then uh, well, I did two years as an agroforestry extension agent. So what I was doing was working with uh, rural farmers and lowland tropical rainforests of southwest Cameroon, uh, working with them to plant soil improving leguminous tree species. Uh, rainforest soil is not all that great, surprisingly, um, even though it's some of the most biodiverse places on the earth. A lot of the carbon and a lot of the nutrients are like up in the canopy rather than it being in the soil. So slash and burn agriculture, when you chop down the trees and then burn up the field so you can be able to plant, the soil leaches and depletes really, really fast. So farmers are on like a two, three year rotation for these fields. And we were, um, the US Peace Corps had us working to plant different types of trees that fix nitrogen. Uh, so they suck nitrogen out of the air and they put it in these nodules in their roots and you plant these, these trees in rows or alleys on different farms and you can't cross them between them. And when the trees get big enough, you cut those trees and they grow back again. But as you cut them, it, uh, those roots release these nitrogen nodules into the soil. And you can stay on the soil for, I don't know, a couple more years rather than that over two or three year rotation. But that's enough really to you know, promote secondary forest regeneration, keep people in one spot and that sort of thing. So you get like twice as much out of it. just with this, this one change creates, you can go from two to three years to four to six. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, and then it is as well, you can use the poles and things for firewood. The, so the, the trees that you cut down, you can use the stalks for firewood and they, they are new every year. So it, um, it helps, it helps farmers quite a bit. And I was paired up um, with a Cameroonian, the a guy from the ministry of agriculture and he, he and I kind of worked hand in hand and I got really good and really interested in working with people, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I um, got into this thinking I was going to go into law, got interested more in working with people and love tropical agriculture and tropical systems. And just serendipitously, Peace Corps put me right, put, put my post uh, right next to a wildlife sanctuary. 
So I was living right next to the Pine and Bow Wildlife Sanctuary, where the uh, Wildlife Conservation Society was had a project. Those, those guys are based out of, were originally the Bronx Zoo, based out of New York. They're a big global uh, conservation organization now. And from there, um, got meeting those guys with WCS was really interested in uh, in wildlife. Um, they consume a lot of wild game uh, in and around the sanctuary. That's all we had to eat. I was in a very, very remote area, a couple hundred people in my village. And uh, the road was only passable for during the dry season. The rainy season would come, the roads would get completely destroyed. And you had to kind of walk out or bike out to get there. So I was, I was really stuck in in this community and you know just living living like everyone else lives so you know if if um someone shot a buffalo that week that's what we ate if someone if it was in the dry season the rivers were a bit low and we're just catching local fish or the fishers were catching local fish that's what i'd eat so we were totally dependent on on wild game and wild products for for my entire time there and it was a it was a big issue the populations are growing and you can't hunt all those big animals all the time or they will the populations will go down um, you, you will deplete them a bit. So got really interested in working on sustainable use of natural resources when I was with WCS. Then after my Peace Corps, I actually joined WCS. They hired me hired me away from Peace Corps. I was going to do my third year, uh, extend my Peace Corps service. But the director of the WCS project at the time was like, no, no, you're, you're, we're, we work with you great. Um, I'm just going to hire you on for a couple of years to, to work with us. Interesting. And you're kind of... <sighs> I always have like five things I want to talk about all at once. Um, it, you 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 have a bit of a specialty with kind of your knowledge of of bushmeat and the bushmeat trade and its influence on local populations and and um, and the global impacts as well. And obviously with uh, 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 with, with COVID, um, the the global population has has started hearing the word zoonosis quite a bit more than mm-hmm. <laughs> than in the, in the past and i i know that's uh that's a aspect in in consideration um as well um could you so maybe before we get into that mm-hmm. let me let me think of the best structure to go about this i think first let let's set up um, what One Health, uh, what the One Health initiative is, um, since, since I like working with them, I, I try to have an episode every month um, uh, with the University of Tennessee talking about the One Health initiative. If, if we can talk about that and then then from that, maybe let's get into a little bit of um, bushmeat stuff. And I would like to talk about food insecurity as well. And then I just also... I have personal questions about what that diet is like and mm-hmm. uh, too. So let's start with One Health Initiative. Yeah, brilliant. So I'm one of the University of Tennessee One Health scholars, and I've been in, involved with the, the One Health program even before it existed. I think you had Deb, uh, you may have had Nina or Deb on the program before, definitely Marcy. But yep. those guys are, um, we were part of the original um, UT Center for Wildlife Health. So I started with them and then the, the, this grew into this One Health initiative. And what One Health is, it's really looking at health from more of a, I guess, a holistic perspective. So you've got human health as one component of One Health. Then you've got environmental health uh, as another component of One Health. And then you've got animal health, and that includes like, livestock and wildlife as well. And all these things interact with one another, and um, that's how we keep ourselves healthy. And if we have something like a, a zoonosis or a global pandemic, we really need to look at it from those three different components 
uh, to be able to solve these sort of these big, big, big issues, big, wicked problems. Um, so, for example, we can't all do all of that work. It's just a huge, massive work where um, not one type of scientist, no one could have that many specialties to be able to cover, tackle a, an issue from a one health approach. So what I bring to the table is actually now I'm a, I'm a social, I'm a trained social scientist. So I work with um, communities and people to find out their attitudes towards different behaviors or towards behavior change, because that's sort of the, um, the way you get behind uh, the scenes on how to how to change people's behavior or how to encourage more healthy or more um, pro-environmental behaviors. So, Let me guess, you yell at them on Twitter. Is that, yeah, the, man, is that the perfect way to change people's minds? Exactly. That's my method and it's it's flawless. <laughs> oh, I've changed so many minds. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, when you do that, it really, really works. But yeah, no, actually what I do, what I feel a lot of what I do is I give a voice to those people that are not shouting on Twitter. Okay, yeah. so the people that are shouting on Twitter are the extremists usually for better yeah. or worse, far left, far right, trying to politicize issues that are really not political <laughs> at the end of the day. Most people yeah. are kind of middle of the road. Um, yeah. So I you know, it, I try to give those those kind of folks a voice. So it's a lot of doing surveys of people or interviews of folks to find out what they really think about a specific issue. And a lot of times I learn so much from the people that I talk to or interview. They have their traditional, there's traditional knowledge and local knowledge and local ideas that can really play a part in solving some of these bigger, bigger problems that, you know, scientists in their ivory towers or scientists in their labs would have, would have never thought of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all right. Well, so, and, and part of the, part of the thrust of, of one health is in, in part of why I'm involved is because a big part of it is, is public communication, just raising awareness uh, generally, because a lot of, as, as we're all becoming, more mindful. I remember I was watching, obviously this is just a TV show, but I'm sure it's somewhat representative of thing. I, I remember watching Mad Men and there was just this scene that stuck out of uh, Drapers with his family in the park and they're done with their picnic and they just stand up and leave. And like all of their picnic stuff is <laughs> they just leave behind. And that's just what you do. Why would you throw things away? You just mm -hmm. and and my my dad um lived in a small town of like a couple hundred people in Iowa and kind of the middle of nowhere-ish, especially back then. And and uh, you know, it was not unusual for things to for people to pitch stuff in the river or whatever when you're, when you're done with it. Like, yeah, that makes for a good dump. And it's just, it, it's, it's just kind of like a, a global mindfulness, a cultural mindfulness of, of like, Oh, I've never thought of that. Oh, this recycling stuff. That's new. And it always, it usually seems weird at first to, you know, some of these initiatives and it, it just, it, it, uh, it, it takes time to one, get, get through to the general population and then your your side of things is like well rather than just kind of telling people what to do rather than a a scientist coming up with some some great idea of what they think is going to work actually going into the communities and talking with people about what's what's realistic and what makes sense and what solutions they already have it's funny you brought up that example. I, I remember this old uh, Simpsons episode where they're driving on a road trip somewhere and Lisa and Bart and everyone's just throwing junk out the window, throwing junk out the window. And that's kind of how it was when I was growing up in Scottsville as well. And you, you also get the example of the picnic, right? So that's what you're kind of describing there. Part of what's going into play is a norm. 
So mm-hmm. it was the, the social norm, man. That's what you did when you were finished with your can of Pepsi, you threw it out the window. Everybody <laughs> did it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just what you did. The, 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 um, you know, that family got up and left the picnic. That's just what you did. Yeah. But as we, you know, as, as, as people started to learn how to influence people in their behavior, we started to like understand, you know, hey, well, people probably don't really know that's a problem. So you can sort of, they probably have actually a pretty good attitude. They don't want to make their place a, a dump. So they probably yeah. actually have pretty decent attitudes about the places where they're at, but it's just the thing to do because, well, dad did it and grandpa did it and everybody did it. And my friend did it, but we can study that stuff. So we can find out where people are on the attitude scale and then we can find out which type of people are important to others, like village leaders or, you know, um, community activists or my family or my friends. And we can really understand these norms and then target messages to um, the people that are important to others, people that are influential, and we change norms, um, you know, we can change things relatively quickly. I always give the example in class, in classes when I ever talk about the social psychology models I use. I'm a, I'm an 80s kid, was born in the mid-70s, and, uh, you know, when it came to gay marriage, when especially during the Bush and Clinton administrations, there was a no-ass, no-tell, all that stuff, right? So that was not that long ago. I'm not that old. Uh, when when we had very negative attitudes about gay oh, people, yeah. homosexuality, um, you know that it was it was running jokes and it was common with me and my guy friends to you know call people gay and stuff like that. Oh, it's not yeah. cool to do that. Yeah, we yeah, mean same. to do that to be mean to anybody. We weren't. Yeah, you know, we were honestly yeah. just joking around. But I one, I was thinking about understand. this very thing like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm from kind of like. Uh, not rural, but this smallish Wisconsin city. Uh, yeah. And it, it's nuts, man. It changed so fast. And like the, in people's attitudes, once they started, uh, you know, understanding other people and learning about, you know, uh, gay culture and learning that, you know, what they were saying and doing was hurting others. Yeah. That change was fast, man. To go from the nineties to, to the two thousands where we're approving, uh, you know, gay marriage from in, in a, in a, 15, 20 year span. It's incredible, but it's, it's yeah. just, you know, you can, you can really, it just goes to the thing that you can change people relatively quickly when it comes to things like attitudes and things like norms and you understand what, where to target your messages and things, but it's, it's just a, you know, people think, Oh no, they're, everyone's set in their ways. And there's these, you know, it's either you're far right or far left or any of this stuff, but no, no, people are actually fairly malleable and, and fairly reasonable I know that's an odd thing to say when we're in a, a political climate where folks are shouting at each other but in in general people are fairly reasonable and not out to get one another i think covid has maybe deepened those divides and i i am i hope you enjoyed this on your road trip uh, we're, we're back in person at, at ut with masks on and things in classrooms and being as safe as possible i guess but uh i understand the connection to students much better now. And I understand that my messages get across so much better when I'm able to talk and discuss with people in person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you're, <laughs> and you're not just hiding by the internet, but people are much less likely to throw those knives or stab you in the back. If they're sitting there looking at you, um, mm-hmm. and you can relate over something. I used to love just, you know, before COVID, I was going to do this my whole, man, my whole life, just, in a strange town, go up to a bar, order a beer, and you know, it, it, it strike up a conversation with the guy next to you. He could be completely from the other end of the spectrum, but you can talk and have a good time, and you know, learn, learn about each other. And mm-hmm. I've got plenty of friends that have different ideas than me, so it's it's a thing to where it's this is kind of an interesting 
topic for me because you know at the end of the day yes we have all these things we have to do with science to cure diseases or science to to, to solve conservation issues but if people aren't willing to make changes and we don't know how to you know sort of push that needle a little bit to change people's minds you know we can do all the science on an endangered species to a blue in the face but we can't t t talk to folks on how to um, conserve it or understand folks on why they and have them convince them on why they can, should conserve it, then, you know, what's the point of doing this research? It's just going to go extinct unless you're going to talk to the people who can actually do something about it. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, I am thrilled that we're talking about this subject. Uh, it's super interesting to me and it's very important. Um, every message is going to resonate a little. I, I think about some of some of like David Attenborough's more recent work has been like super heavy into the darker extinction uh, side of things. I think a little bit of us projecting as he is kind of going extinct himself. He's getting up there in age. I'm going to miss that guy when he's gone. Mm -hmm. We all are. Um, but, uh, uh, but, uh, but anyway, I'm I'm still thrilled with everything that he that he puts out there, and I kind of have a fondness for the darkness, and I I, I like hearing about, um, kind of tragic things, and I'd just rather be aware of them than not be aware. It just doesn't bother me as like I find it really interesting, but I know I know a lot of people that normally like. Uh, the planet Earth and those sorts of things, watching the wildlife documentaries that have found his recent series is to be too depressing for them <laughs> to, to get through. And, and if that's the case for that person, well, you know, good luck, uh, you know, helping some otter population. If you don't first get people interested in otters enough to like, learn more about it, to care in the first place. And there there's, there's just the, the point of that explanation is just each, each individual is going to need to kind of hear the message slightly different from it. It, it depends who's delivering it and everything else. And then in terms of norms, one, I kind of, I have my own biases because I'm I'm sort of a I I can be a knee jerk contrarian and and so I've I've never I've always I've always ran away from every norm that there is so it's kind of easy for me to change the for better some norms are good and so it's like sometimes it's 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 not it's not great to hate every single norm that there is but I've also been really privileged because um, kind of, as you were saying, getting to meet a lot of people and travel and tra uh, as a comedian, I've gotten to travel the world. I've gotten to meet endless audiences of every kind of rural and, and, uh, metropolitan and just every, every kind of audience, um, VFW clubs to like hipster venues and every, everything in between. And you can't help speaking of like, you know, making homophobic remarks and stuff when when you're you're a young man, and I I had plenty of that and other outgroup bias and stuff like that, and th that stuff just naturally goes away when when you travel and meet meet more people. There's nothing you don't even you don't even have to try. It's and it's like it's not. It's not even it's not like virtue signaling or whatever. It's just like, no, I just met a bunch of people. It's you can't 
you can't think of people as like different or dehumanized once you meet and chat with them. And so it's also a place of privilege too, that like you and I have gotten to travel so much and have so many experiences because a lot of people just are in the same town that they've always been in and, and like got a job and had a family met their high school sweetheart and have great lives and nothing's wrong with that, but they just haven't, had the opportunity to like you and I have to, to meet such, um, you know, different culture, explore different cultures and meet such a diverse number of, of groups of people. Yeah. And that's, you know, that I know we're here to talk a lot about one health and research, but that's a major part of my job here at university of Tennessee is I coordinate the study abroad program for the, for the for the Herbert college of agriculture. And I lead like three study abroad classes. So I, I lead one to, um, two to Belize and then one to Costa Rica. And yes, it is a little bit of a privilege because they are college students, uh, but we actively try to recruit first gen and um, people that aren't typically on study abroad programs. But when I was in college in the 90s, study abroad was not that big of a thing and it's taken off exponentially in recent years. Uh, and that's one of the things that I see now as my job purpose at University of Tennessee. Yes, I can teach about international agriculture and natural resources so I'm blue in the face in the classroom. But I've taken students that have never left the state of Tennessee into the rainforests of Belize. And to see that through their eyes and to experience with the wonder and fascination through them is just it's just amazing. So getting people out into the world and experiencing other cultures, I, it, it can't be more important now than, than it's ever been. Because we're, you know, in addition, back in the 80s and 90s, we weren't connected up like this. We couldn't, we had no Facebook. We got our stuff from documentaries and TV shows about different cultures and whatnot. But now we got people connecting up online across the world. But the next step is definitely to get people out and experience it. Because there's, I mean, you travel, man, there's nothing like going to eating a new food, meeting a new person, trying to stumble through a, 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 a your English versus someone else's English versus another mm -hmm. local language. It's a, it's fun, man. It's a lot of experience, a lot of life experiences. You learn doing these sorts of things. And, you know, I try to give a little bit of that back to, um, you know, give a little bit of back to my Peace Corps experience, give a little bit of back to my travels to, uh, to the up and coming, hopefully new leaders of, uh, of, of, of the, of the country here at, here at the university. This is such an interesting and might I also say feels daunting as a topic in terms of uh, in terms of changing norms i mean when you think about norms that's huge that that's uh, i mean the, the 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 word implies it it's it's you're you're talking about changing massive aspects of uh of a culture humans may very well be one of the most flexible adaptive species on earth but darn they can be stubborn as well and i mean i've i've lived through i how old are you do you, do you mind me saying yeah 47 oh you're 46 oh you look young i'm 41 <laughs> i've i've lived through um you know the seat belts yep um and and that was people were so averse i mean i still know people that don't like wearing their seatbelt, even with the, like now my car's beeping at me because my buddy won't put his dumb seatbelt on. Like, come on, this, it's been 30 years. And, and then, uh, it, it, the, the 
no smoking indoors is like I I sometimes still perform in clubs where they'll they'll still have smoking indoors. I remember mentioning something on stage, be like, the you guys have no idea how insane this is. And they're just looking at me like I'm the crazy one, you know, because it's like you don't see until it's over. And I remember when they when they tried to end smoking and everyone's like, this is government tyranny and the overreach and they're trying to control us and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you stop having smoking indoors. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we all prefer that. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Even smokers is <laughs> just actually, better for in, everybody. I grew up in rural Virginia, and you could buy, because Philip Morris is in Richmond, Virginia, you yeah. could buy cigarettes when I was uh, back. They've changed, of course, they've changed a lot since. But you could buy cigarettes at age 15 in Virginia. So as soon as you got your learner's permit, you go start buying cigarettes. And I did that because that was sort of all my crazy buddies and their rebellious norms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember the seatbelts too, but you know, the, it, some of these campaigns have been great though. So the seatbelts, um, I remember doing this to my grandparents and I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm of a similar age to you. And I remember getting stuff in school. Hey, you got to wear your seatbelt, all the safety stuff in school. And I get in the car and I somehow convinced my parents and then convinced my grandparents. So they, you know, me, them loving their grandchildren, of course, and um, it becoming the norm in young kids, we were able to move the needle a little bit on some of that with family members, of course, but that's not, that's not true for everyone. So understanding these, these norms and who's influential to people, um, you can know where to target your messages and you can change, you know, you can, you can slowly get in there and change behavior. So, you know, we're, most of us thankfully are wearing seatbelts these days. And man, I was a smoker for way too long. I wish. Me too. I wish. I wish uh, I smoked for like 15 years and started at age 15, you know, even before then you find out who the influential people are, you know, change their attitudes a bit or encourage their already positive attitudes towards things. We can make behaviors change and you have to be narrow in your focus. We're not going to, you know, not going to say, Oh, our behavior can't be changed the world. Right. All at once. No, it has to be, you know, targeted things. Okay. Seatbelts. That's a very specific thing we can go. Okay, yeah. uh, don't kill endangered animals in the rainforest. Very specific thing we can say. Um, don't use, and this, is a, this happened um, on the project I worked on in Cameroon, don't use agricultural chemicals and throw them in the river to, uh, to kill fish. It'll make you sick. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've seen these things like where we had, where if you're, if you're very targeted and you understand specific behaviors and how they work, we can, you know, change people hopefully for the better. Yeah, hmm. That's that fishing example, man. It's a really cool one. So yeah, yeah. Gonna... That's because because I want to touch on this idea of of because you you just went back to this again. This mm-hmm. idea of you you mentioned attitude scales, and then you mentioned specifically kind of these village leaders and mm-hmm. and getting getting uh, to them. So yeah, if, let's explore that a little bit more. So yeah, let me give you an example of that, that fishing I was talking about. It's a really good example. It's one of the um, cautious. I'm going to hang my hat on anything I did very small in a very small place. I would say this is one of the, one of the best things that I, I didn't do it myself. I just empowered people or help people to, um, you know, express themselves. So we were doing these appraisals of all the, the, all the communities around this wildlife sanctuary. It's called the Bayang and Bo wildlife sanctuary in Southwest Cameroon. And it was me with a team of um, four other Cameroonians, uh, most of them social scientists or agricultural scientists or conservationists. And you go into the community and you stay and eat with the community for three or four days and all the time you're collecting data. So first thing you do is we split the team into, hey, you're going to work with the men, you're going to work with the, with the women. It's a very patriarchal society and women don't get 
um, uh, that much of a voice. But if you split them out from the men, um, they'll sometimes open up. So we're doing one of these appraisals. We do like these mapping activities. You draw on, in, on the ground or on a sheet of paper. Where do you go to fetch your water? Where do you go to get your um, wild, wildlife? Where do you go to get your timber? So you can spatially kind of figure out what people are doing and where they're going. And as people are doing this, they start telling you stories about the places. So I remember in the, it was actually in the village I did my Peace Corps work, a small village called Epiagua. And when we were doing our PRA there, I worked with the men's group and the women's group was on, on the, doing something else, doing their mapping exercise. And then you present them back. When the men present to the women, the women present to the men. They, the, the actual community members present their maps back. And the river uh, was very important to the women. And they started talking about issues to the, with the river and things. And then they brought up in front of the entire village, we as the women here do not appreciate people throwing agricultural chemicals, this thing called gamoline, uh, into the water to poison fish to eat. It's making our children sick, it's depleting our fish, it's doing all kinds of bad things to us. We really would like this to stop. And the men actually heard it then. And uh, the village leaders in this case were men, um, older men. And traditional law in Cameroon is actually, um, as long as it doesn't go against government law, Traditional law is is actual law in Cameroon, so villages can make their own laws as long as it doesn't go against national law. So in the next couple of weeks, um, they actually met as a village council and then met as a um, sort of a tribal council. So it's a, 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 a bunch of villages grouped together in a certain ethnic group. And they passed a local law saying there's no more fishing with gambling in the rivers. And that all came about because we actually just listened right? And mm -hmm. empower these women to stand up and talk with their community so that everyone could kind of understand what was going on. The men, they didn't do much of the cooking. They didn't do much of the childcare. They were out, you know, either hunting or working the farms, the, the cacao, the chocolate farms, that sort of stuff. But just by allowing people to have the voice and understanding a little bit how people work, we were able to, you know, make a little bit of a difference. And it's, it's, it feels good, but then it also, you know, think about the impact of the health and all that on, the, on those communities. I, I hope we, you know, it seems like we did a pretty positive thing just by listening. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea of fishing with chemicals. That is horrifying <laughs> to me from, uh, from an outsider perspective, <laughs> from yeah. an alien anthropology perspective, like, yeah, of course, why would you, I can't imagine how many, what, what do we, what do you, can you think of something like, um, there's probably a ton of things that Americans have that people in Cameroon would be like, what in the, like have that same reaction I just did to, uh, chemical fishing. Oh, I don't know. Probably some of the, I would imagine some of the things that we eat that are very unusual things like, um, not from Cameroon, but from East Africa. Um, I, yeah. I, I do my master's in England, and it was a very diverse master's. So it's folks from England. It's called the Darrell Institute of Conservation Ecology. And there's people from all over the world, from Central Africa, from uh, India. I was the only guy from the U.S. And uh, I remember, um, was it my friend, Nashanda? Um, he was from Tanzania. And actually, I got to work in Tanzania, Tanzania later, and he was head of uh, game and fish at the time. But I, uh, he, it was his first time out of Tanzania. He was a little bit older than me. I was in my 30s doing my master's. He was maybe 35, 40. And uh, we take, I, I took him out to, um, you know, to buy a, a computer. He needed a computer. And he's breaking pretty much every British norm out there. So we go into these old, it's like a circuit city type thing, a computer shop, a Best Buy. And uh, we're waiting there to, to, to go get the computer. And I'm, I'm patiently being, you know, American slash British, waiting, waiting patiently to be waited on. And 
Nash just goes and he starts trying to get the guy to come over, hissing at him, right? And that's done all over the place in Central uh, Central and East Africa, and it's totally acceptable. Um, so that freaks out the British guy, freaks <laughs> me out as well. And it's you know, it's just these little nuances of him learning yeah. a little bit of different culture. And I'm sure there are many, many, many times um, when he, uh, you know, give him something like, I don't know, even, you know, even basic English pub food would have been very, very unusual for folks. But yeah, we, we yeah. do a... We do a lot of weird stuff. I mean, I've heard stories about. Um, you should just bring over like a, those, you know, those crazy large jawbreakers that came out like 30 years ago. Like, here's what kids eat. It's, it's a little worse than poison fish. <laughs> yeah, there's, oh God, there's tons of weird stuff. I'm sure that we, that wouldn't be that palatable. <laughs> let, uh, let me, um, let me ask in terms of, Another thing in terms of these norm, I, I don't know if this is an area of your study, but you, you kind of mentioned um, getting into environmental law. Is that a thing that you, so you kind of dropped the environmental law stuff over time? You, okay. Yeah, I completely dropped it. Well, like, you know, like I said, never even cracked that LSAT book. Cause back then, you know, was in undergrad, I was still, I'm, I'm from a very small town. Like I said, I didn't know what I was going to do when I was in college. Like every, like half the other students, I thought I was pre pre-med because that's yeah. what you're supposed to do, right? Because make money and become a doctor. Found out very soon that's not what I was interested in, started taking environmental science classes, and then got this thing in my head. And another friend of mine who is a, a pretty well-known environmental lawyer up in Chicago, um, he actually continued on that path. So he and I did similar degrees. So he, he, did, he did his, um, I think, all in English. He might have taken a few in bi classes. But I decided to double up on it. Because that's where I thought, you know, that's where I thought I saw change being affected. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, if I if I was a lawyer, and that's what we do in the states, you know, if, if if the government's not if the government's not doing what it's supposed to be doing as per our environmental policy, the environmental lawyers go and sue the government. So I was like, well, that's how we affect change. And when I went to Cameroon, I saw the completely opposite side of that. Right, we don't have to go top down approach on every single thing we have. There doesn't have to be a rigid law and a policeman with a stick to change something. Yeah. Right? You can work with local people and build it from the ground up. Like this, that example of fishing in Cameroon, the, the government of Cameroon gives the power to the local communities to set their own laws and regulations as, as long as they're not, you know, contra to, to, to big national laws. And I saw this completely different way life worked where people could work together and manage you know resources together that's essentially what they're doing they're managing you know it's a common pool resource they're managing this fish together it's there for the whole community and when the whole community decides hey you're doing a bad thing to this the whole community gets behind it and tries to manage it sustainably rather than us having to go to the, the capital of cameroon yaoundé and be a lawyer and change a law or something and it's mm -hmm. that mindset of me you know feeling the power of community and the power of um, you know, people being able to manage resources on their, on their own was very profound to me. And it's kind of the thing where I was like, well, I, you know, I don't want to be the stick. I don't want to be the person that's just there telling people not what not to do. Why not empower the people to, you know, manage sustainably. So more, more positivist attitude, more positive system. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, there's, there is though there is this other tricky factor kind of related to maybe law a little bit more that it that is you know you know there there's informing people 
giving people the knowledge, experience, uh, uh, talking talking with communities um, to create norms. But there are there are also like large forces that have a vested interest in um, in the status quo and it, we. Seatbelts, for example, GM spent a whole lot of money trying to not get anyone to put seatbelts in because they're like, we've got to start putting seatbelts in. Like, like they wouldn't even let other makers use it as an option because they're like, well, then the government's going to come in and want to regulate this. We're going to have to add more things and more things. And they're kind of right in some in some ways that that did happen. But but they were they were good. I'm happy that we have seatbelts and airbags and not decapitating ourselves on dashboards any anymore. Um, but uh, but but there's forces like that. Like uh, uh, I, th- I think BP invented the the, the phrase um, carbon footprint to kind of put the ownership on on the individual like it's hey it's it's not us it's you you consumers buying from us that's that's what the real problem is and um it it, there's there's just in in terms of wildlife trade i can think have you ever heard of parrot fever Um, i don't think i have it's like the 1940s or something there's just there was just this period of time when tropical birds uh, like blew up in the United States. There was like a oh, half a half and things, I guess. And like maybe global travel was becoming easier with flight and every whatever happened, people would be, you know, bringing parrots and things back from from South America as gifts. There would be like a half a million a year. And when you when you speaking of zoonosis, um, parrots and some other tropical birds would have have some I'm forgetting the the technical name for it but some parrot fever thing that they that they lived fine with until you can find them in shipping crates and they got stressed and shed in in confinement and uh and then it and then they would become symptomatic they would have um, diarrhea that would turn into dust that would then it flapped around and it would get into humans and it was pretty deadly and there's just a lot of motivated reasoning so so can you so when scientists were like hey there's this problem with the bird trade and we need to start regulating the bird trade industry and some of the wildlife coming out of this is actually it was the founding uh, it was when NIH was originated. The first biohazard suits originated from parrot fever because they were using shoddy labs and stuff. But when they started figuring out what was happening, um, can you have a guess at who was the most um, adverse to hearing that birds were causing some deadly disease? You want to take a yeah. whack at it? Pet trader, pet trader owners, pet owners. <laughs> yeah, pet owners, bird yeah. traders, that sort, of, yeah. that sort of thing. And, and you know, we've seen a lot of this with COVID, too, where there's a lot of, you know, I'm a comedian. A lot of if, if your business is to pack people indoors, there is like motivation to be like, well, how bad is it really to pack people indoors shoulder to shoulder? And um, and so the point is, is there's there's also. There's also bigger forces like that, whether it's GM or BP or the bird trade industry or or whatever. It, 
how how does some of those factors factor in? Do they factor in at all to any of the work that you do? I wouldn't say not. I wouldn't say all that much. And the stuff okay. I'm doing currently, um, I'm really working on you know uh, people looking at changing local level, possibly reaching up to national level conservation laws and things yeah. like that. So, you know, these these big laws they are very important. And I'm not you know the, you have to at some point when it comes to some of these things like you mentioned wildlife trade. So the world had to get together and come up with a convention on international trade and endangered species to try to, to try to regulate some of that stuff. Um, but I, I see more durable solutions and more support for conservation or more support for health when things, um, you know, are pitched at the, at the local level and people can do something. Mm. I, um, there's, there's an example, you, you would have seen this as well in the nineties, Lyle Gore came out with his inconvenient truth, which was great for the time for awareness raising. But all he did was get on, he was on like a cherry picker and he was on there with the curve going up and up and up and he kept pointing at the curve going up and up and up. And it's an important curve. But then in the movie, I don't remember there really being anything actionable for people to do, mm-hmm. right? So you just come up, completely left them hanging and feeling hopeless. And that's not always the best approach, okay? Mm-hmm. Scaring the crap out of people is sometimes, you know, can get some people motivated. But if you keep doing it without telling people um, or giving people an option to be able to do some conservation action, they get very frustrated. And when it comes to things like climate change, yeah, we can change as many light bulbs as we want in our house. But until some of the big things get taken care of, it's not really going to work. So we've got all people behind climate change, but then hopefully that's raised their raised some attitudes and things to get things changed in the bigger picture. Hmm. But it's hard with some of these big big time issues for people to empower people or what they to to do something. An example of my research: I just got finished um, with a U.S. National Parks grant. I've been working with the U.S. National Park Service to look at this thing called uh, white nose syndrome. And what visitors? And bats. Yeah, and bats. Bats. Yeah. yeah so it's a it's a disease that uh, probably for your listeners, for a disease that um, affects bats, a fungal disease. It uh, gets white white nose syndrome. It gets all over their bats' faces and turns them all white and things. And it gives them splotchy wings and wakes them up in the winter when they're supposed to be hibernating. I'm way oversimplifying this. My wife is actually a bat biologist, so she'll probably uh, chew me out when I hear this. <laughs> I've oversimplified it, but. Uh, so, um, so these, these bats wake up in the winter and they're not supposed to basically go fly out of the cave. There's nothing there to eat because it's the winter. There's no bugs or anything. And, and essentially, you know, they, they die of starvation or, um, you know, just overexertion during that time. So the National Park Service is very interested, of course, in managing um, their caves. So white nose syndrome doesn't affect them all. It's still moving westward. Um, it's up through Tennessee. It's getting in the Rockies now. There's been some odd cases all the way out in Washington. They think cavers brought out. But the Park Service really wanted to implement some measures for the park visitors that visitors could accept, right, that um, would help to mitigate whiteness syndrome. So things like closing caves for part of the year. Can, um, can I can I stop you just for one yeah, second? Because because I, I think there you might you might have said it, but just in case you missed a piece of the puzzle. Um, the, the, the white nose syndrome, I, I believe it, it's, it's often moved to, it, it becomes invasive in other areas because, uh, often like cavers, for example, will have, get some on their boot and say Europe or, and, and then fly and go caving in the Northeast and, and cave there. And that's how, that's how it transfers. So that's right what on. you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's how we got to... here. So it's a, it's a fungus that doesn't really bother bats all that much in Europe and yeah. the, for our best Best guess, and it's a pretty darn good guess, is that some cavers from Europe 
um, flew over to New York to do some caving in New York. And there's like, basically there's a, this one spot in New York, this one cave, and then you can see sort of the rings come out from there. So the bats spread to one another after it's there. And it, although it doesn't affect European bats, it affects um, North American bats very, very badly mm -hmm. um, into, into that, where I said the sort of the starvation and stuff like that. So once it, once it was here, um, we think that most of the spread was bats to bats. However, in the last couple of years, um, there was one weird thing that has popped up in Washington yeah. State. White notion that popped up out there. There's no okay. way some bat just flew from Tennessee across the Rockies and ended up in Washington. They just don't do that, right? Yeah. So th that that has been, that is highly likely that is a caber um, spreading that around. So that's right. what the National Park Service is interested in. They didn't want people visiting, say, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky with their or cavers with visiting the Mammoth Cave system up in Kentucky. And then taking that up to North Dakota to Wind Cave or Jewel Cave. So there's yeah. a big national white nose group, and they're coming up with all sorts of policies and things on how to how to mitigate this, how to slow the spread of white nose because you know we're trying to contain it so it doesn't keep going moving further and further west. So they got some strategies and, and for, for cave visitors and cavers as well. And some of the strategies they were looking at was partially closing caves so people couldn't get in them um, for for part of the year, or fully closing caves for a certain uh. amount of time. Another thing that they wanted to do, um, and they're doing this in many parks, is in Mammoth Cave and, and uh, now in Carlsbad Caverns as well. They're having even the, just the regular everyday visitor uh, walk across a decontamination mat, right? So you walk across the decontamination mat, you're either at the beginning or the end or both of the cave. Like you wash your boat before you go into another uh, exactly. so you're not spreading water system. Muscles around. So yeah, you're not yeah. spreading you know, fungal spores on your shoes because... A lot of times people, and I did this as a kid, we took road trips, right? And we would go with my family and we'd go from one national park to the next. And you don't want to be in con contributing to the chain of that spread of the stuff on your shoes. So they, they're looking at cave closures, decon mats. Um, and then for cavers, having like dedicated gear for a certain region. So, you know, white nose is here, so it's okay to you know, use that gear here. But if you're, a, if you're a caver and you go out to, say, lava beds caves in, in, a, in, in, or in a California, and Oregon, that you don't take that stuff with you. So you have a different set of gear. So what we were doing in our research, and I had a student, this was probably the most amazing project. She got to go to all the big, they call them showcase in the National Park Service. That's like Carlsbad and Mammoth and all these really cool, awesome. cool, cool sites. Yeah. She's now at um, University of Georgia doing a, um, she's now a, a full scientist in another lab at the University of Georgia, which is awesome. Uh, she just yeah, she, she just likes caving though, right? Like does. both of you guys are just scam artists to yeah, that, no, I, that are using <laughs> that are using science funding to travel the world and do awesome things, right? Hey man, we are, you know we're, the, the government's entrusted with, with, with protecting our public lands, so uh, someone someone's got to figure it out. Caving's yeah, we, awesome. We, what we find, in, in there, so we're studying people's. You know, we thought, ah, you know, what the Park Service was worried about. Throwing because in the past they close stuff off. The you get the squeaky wheels get all bent out of shape, and the park service is there not only to serve the wildlife, but then also to, to provide recreation opportunities for people. That's that's part of the Organic Act. That's what national parks are for. So they have this weird balance where they got to try to balance both of these uh, the recreation with with the conservation of resources. And they were genuinely interested. How do we get you know what would be acceptable for people going to visit these caves? And we just asked them. To, uh, Hannah set up a table in front of the visitor center at all these different national parks, and people would come by and take surveys on iPads. And our, our research on that is just starting to come out now. And this is a you know a, it's a park visitor, so they're there probably you know 
probably a conservation-minded individual to go to a national park in the first place. But we found, you know, that people actually were fairly accepting of all of these different techniques as long as there were no big barriers to it. Like, you know, if, if you're going to say you need to change clothes before going in a certain cave or doing something like that, the, the park service would, may have to provide um, all, you know, different types of clothes or some sort of coverings for shoes or something along those lines. But the park service was reassured and then also to expand these preventative measures for white nose that the, you know, the, the, the public wouldn't raise a stink and the public actually was interested in doing this. But one thing we found out, getting back to this whole, uh, you know, small gains, concrete things people could do, um, Hannah was frequently asked after the survey, people would say to her, well, what can I do to mm -hmm. help bats? How can I do this in my own house to help bats? And unfortunately with white nose, there's not too much an individual can do. I mean, you can put up some, some bat boxes in your yard to provide some more habitat, but really this is a disease that's spreading. So following the rules in the national park service is probably the best thing you can do, but it's very frustrating to people, even back going back to that inconvenient truth when they can't actually, they learn about something and they want to help and then they can't. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a really, really hard thing that we, we really, you know, it, it, it's one thing to, to gloom and doom um, all the issues. But if you can't give people actionable things, it's really, really frustrating to individuals and cannot having, you know, can end up having backlash on you at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, every, everyone wants to, uh, you know, given the time and space and energy, you know, some people, you know, just certain issues aren't going to matter to some, you know, life is full of a zillion things to think about, but I, everyone at the end of the day likes the idea of making the quote unquote correct choices in life. But that's, it, that's still the key word is choice and, you know, choosing people, people definitely have an aversion to being told what to do. And uh, I mean, COVID's really highlighted this with, with things like, um, you, you know, all, all of the, all of the sensible arguments that, uh, uh, and you just mentioned how important it is to, you know, see people in person and everything like that. And all, all of those arguments made early on of like, oh, we can't do all of these things because, because this will be a mental health issue and everything. And although I agree with all of that, um, in, in some regards, I also think that aspects of it were just people not wanting to be if, if it were instead the case that we we're like hey we look at what these bat populations are doing to live with viruses and they pack close to one another and and keep their body temperature up so we'll do that we'll keep our body temperature up we we need to be around one another all the time we'll like be at live music indoors dancing with one another and inside at gyms and packed you just gotta be packed around everyone all the time people would be like i need my alone time this is a <laughs> mental health issue i can't just be around people all of the time and it's because a big aspect of it is just not being told what to do. And I, I think this is that's why I believe this is such an important conversation that we're having enlightening for me, because I, I do. I mean, I think policy is a tricky issue of when you mentioned the top down stuff. And but you also mentioned, you know, empowering women to uh, to influence some of these elders, too. Well, that is still policy change at at the end of the day you know it's it's i i think that 
I think that the most libertarian person in the world would at the end of the day still still likes good policy mm-hmm. that is effective and works and benefits them and everybody else. It's just sometimes how it's presented. How it's presented and who the message comes from as well. So that's yeah. We asked about, you know, people's attitudes towards bats and if they're comfortable walking across the mats and all that stuff. But then we had a whole nother section of, of once again, norms. So what, what, um, who, who is the best person to send that message? Because people want to know why they're having to walk across these mats. People really want to know why um, they can't go into the cave at a certain time. I've driven all the way here. Now I can't go in the cave because um, you've closed it for some reason. But we actually asked questions about which two groups of people that more um, that message should come from. And, you know, people like park rangers were ranked highly and then friends and family. And, uh, um, you know, people people were if you know where and who to send a trustworthy message through, that's that's great. And if, if that person is trusted, people accept that message. I think with COVID, the problem we have is that we had people that people respected, but they weren't given the right message. Right. So they're giving out a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of BS about what's going on and that's it, the the social psychology model still works right man because they're asking like they're they're getting their message from a trusted source but the message is off mm-hmm. so i don't know how it could have been done different it hit us so hit, it hit us so quick i know we've been talking about pandemics or i have ever since i've been studying this stuff um forever we knew something was coming eventually <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, it's for, it, it got so politicized so fast and people were giving out all these conflicting you know, messages that pe- it just confused the general public. It's, it's, it's hard. And it continues today. I, you know, it's just it getting the, I trust this person, so I'm going to listen to everything they say, no matter if it's, it's completely just cooked up in a, I, in a newsroom. I mean, if, if, if you were to ask me what we could reasonably expect and do different. I mean, one, I did not, uh, I thought we had a really uh, incompetent president that made it all about him at the worst possible time. But still, if you, if you were to ask me, that's, that's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, next, next pandemic. What, what are we going to do? What What's a, what's a list of uh, put me in charge of epidemiology. What what's the checklist of things that we do when when there there's maybe a threat on on the horizon? There's there's word that some air that some virus is breaking through to human populations. You know, twenty years from now, what can we learn from this one that we would do differently next time? And I'm like, I don't really know. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, where I come from. So I come from the preventative. We need to stop this stuff before it happens. We've known yeah. forever where we know where zoonoses come from. Yeah. We know they come mostly from wildlife, like 70 plus percent come from wildlife. We know that people are encroaching on areas they haven't been in before. Yeah. yeah. People are eating and touching and whatever with animals that can transmit zoonoses. We know there are active wet markets all over um, Southeast Asia and sub Saharan Africa. We know all this stuff. So we put. The amount of effort we've had to put into making vaccines, the amount of money we've had to put into making vaccines and educating the public and locking everything down, the amount of money we've lost that way. If we had invested a fraction of that in preventative measures where these diseases emerge from, I think we'd be in a much better place. It's so yeah. hard for me to get money to go and study these sorts of things. We were studying, I was studying this with Marcy, one of your previous guests in East Africa, in Uganda. 
and there is a uh, is a, a community but uh, uh, people that live north of Murchison Falls National Park. Um, they do some hunting. Uh, they don't traditionally like to eat baboons, and they definitely don't like to eat bats. Um, so we thought, you know, well, okay, seems like this would be a fairly reasonable place where people could maybe be a little bit culturally immune to some of these big bad crossover things because things cross over most of the time from rodents, rodents, from bats, bass, primates, and primates. Birds. And so we're like, okay, these guys aren't eating primates. Don't want to eat primates. Don't want to eat bats. So why is this like an Ebola outbreak area? Well, people are going out into the forest further and further to find more food and the population is growing. But in addition to this, so something really, um, we found out something fairly unusual. So I was having a community meeting in a, in a, in a community north of Murchison Falls with hunters and, the, and, and whatnot to try to determine some good research questions. Marcy and I wanted, wanted to do some research on bushmeat and zoonoses, so bushmeat hunted game in Africa and zoonoses. So we were asking about, hey, do you guys eat bats? Do you guys eat baboons? And everyone's like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're from this area. We do not eat those things. It's not in our culture, too. And finally, at one point, one of the hunters stood up, and a brave, brave young guy, he's like, hey, you may not want to eat, you, know what? you may not think you're eating primates, but you actually may be. So what's happening in this area um, of, uh, north of Murchison Falls in Uganda is that baboons, they're big animals, man, and they destroy crops. So hunting is totally illegal in Uganda. People do it anyway, but the only thing you can legally hunt are things that destroy crops. So we're talking about uh, primates and uh, bush pigs. So you can get those guys if they're if they're damaging your crops. Mm-hmm. And so this hunter said, well, you know, we're allowed to kill these baboons and they're big animals with big bits of muscle. And you can butcher that in a way that it looks like anything else, right? So if you, mm-hmm. meat is meat. If it's big enough, it could. You, who knows if that's a piece of a a baboon or a piece of a, um, a hippo, which is you know, relatively safe. So we started asking around, we're like, oh my gosh, is this, is this really happening? Is there this deception in the market between the hunter and the buyer and the consumer? And we went back years later and I went and interviewed a bunch of hunters around the park to see what they thought about this deception. And then I followed up my PhD student. She interviewed women and cooks uh, about this issue, see if they thought about deception. And the hunters and the dealers are saying, yeah, we're doing this all the time. We're selling the meat as to sell the meat. And the women are like, no, this never happens. So this is complete disparity here where people should be largely culturally immune from some of these crossover events because they're not eating, they don't want to eat bats and they don't want to eat primates, but they're getting tricked <laughs> into eating them. So this is a, it's kind of a neat thing. We had come out earlier this year. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is nuts. So if we would invest more time, money, and effort into, you know, the places where these zoonoses spill over and occur and address the real problems of, growing populations and having to clear more land for agriculture and having to kill more wildlife to eat. We're going to prevent, we're never going to see the, you know, we will see zoonoses emerge, of course, but hopefully we won't see them as often. And unfortunately we like to react as a society. We like to say, Oh no, we're going to wait till the, the, the something bad happens until the big fire happens. And then we'll do something about it. Well, it's super hard. I, I mean, that that's the thing when I, cause all of that sounds good. Like, you know, preventative care. Yes, it's so much cheaper than it just it, it preventative everything. The preventative maintenance on your car is is you, you know I I just had to make a choice of uh of I had a flat tire and I have all wheel drive and so it was either just replace the one tire and sure. risk screwing up my drivetrain 
or bite the bullet and have and buy all four. T- I replaced all four tires, but it was a difficult decision to make. It was a financial. It was a bigger financial hit than only replacing one tire. And and that that's just so much of no one. And 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 not just the cost of things, but no one is going to, no one is ever going to be celebrated for the pandemics that didn't happen. You know, like no one's ever going to be grateful. We're not going to have a holiday each year to be like, we didn't have a new pandemic this year. Hooray. And I don't know what that holiday, uh, hope that ho- that holiday would be like very sterile and everything else I imagine. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, you can get accolades by some people anyway for discovering a vaccine to that, uh, helps fix a problem that already exists and um and you can have someone that but then you have you have people that don't want to get the vaccine this preventative thing until they're in the icu and then they're like i'm ready for the vaccine and have to find that out how vaccines work the hard way and it's just like how it's just not very salient When, when when the problem never arises you're you're it's just hard to be grateful for it it's hard to really appreciate with zoonoses though they do arise right so you get small outbreaks that die off so this okay. area we're working with in in north of Murchison falls park in uganda they've had marburg outbreaks they've had ebola outbreaks but they're very small and localized and these are hemorrhagic fevers um people it's a very high fatality thankfully covid didn't have as high a fatality although it probably would have burned out faster if it had a high fatality yeah uh, yeah but um, that's that's a side point. That's for some of your uh, biologists and virologists sure. to talk about. Um, but it, for example, in these communities, so they've had these smaller outbreaks of Ebola, and we ask people about what what they thought about diseases, what diseases come from which types of uh, wildlife, and that sort of thing. And the people were very aware that diseases cross over from wildlife. They were all aware of Marburg. They were all aware of Ebola, and they correctly mm-hmm. identified and grouped them into one. We did this with statistics. Um, grouped them into one category, and they put rodents, primates, and bats into one category as opposed to all other wildlife. They were knew where these things were coming from, where the diseases emerged from. And all the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Wildlife didn't put that much money into education campaigns on radio and, and in local communities to talk about these things, but they put enough into where people were well aware and did not want to consume these animals and the deception was what was getting them. But, you know, a little bit can go a long way, especially in, in countries with low, much lower, much, much lower economies than us. And people will listen and change their behaviors like the like these these communities. They did, they knew where the diseases could mm. potentially come from and they didn't want to eat them. So, I mean, we spend some targeted preventative stuff and it can, it can go a pretty long way. Mm. The hunting and fishing situation that that. It seems like um, it seems like such a, qu- a tricky one. Like, but you, you know, it's in the same way that quitting smoking is very difficult, um, as you and I both know. Mm-hmm. But um, but it, it, I, I've never had an eating disorder. But that that sounds more difficult to me because you still you need to eat. You cannot yeah. quit eating cold, cold turkey. And, and so 
you need to have a relationship with food in 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 this in the same issue with with bushmeat and zoonosis and ever in hunting and fishing and how to regulate things and what's too much and there's going to be some cheaters and poachers and mm-hmm. maybe there's going to be policy that's bad too and and too restrictive and and how do you go about first off can i ask you a lighter question before we get into that that's related I'm very interested in some good. What's like good bush meat that you enjoy? Like, what oh are some of, what are some I of your agree. meals that you really? Because I like trying. Like, it's hard to find something that, like, I'm thrilled about. Like kangaroo, I wasn't a fan. Of, like shark, I thought was gross. And but I'll, I'll always try a new thing. But very rarely do I find something that I'm like, ooh, that. So. Venison stromboli. <laughs> I no longer eat meat. I'm pescatarian these days. I only eat fish and beans and stuff because the meat in general is just it's an environmental train wreck uh, on what on what it costs environmentally for us to produce cows and that sort of stuff. Chickens are okay and fish are, are pretty pretty sustainable. Just the feces that, alone that <laughs> yes, goes into the land and waterways and everything else. But I, so when I was in Cameroon, I only had like only basically I had two rules on what I would not eat. I, I I'm I'm pretty open to eating anything, but me coming from you know uh, growing up sort of in a conservationist in the U.S., my my family was very very outdoorsy and we were very much um, had a conservation ethic. Is when I got to Cameroon, I was like, well, I'm not gonna if you know I know that the community I'm getting posted to. The primary source of protein is meat, and it's hunted meat. So I was like, "Well, mm-hmm. I got two rules for myself: I'm not going to eat anything endangered, and I'm not going to eat primates. It's just too weird, man." I did see, like, you know, and it, it, for me, it's to see something that looks human-like in, mm-hmm. in a stew pot is, is, is disconcerting to me. And you know, it's just other people's cultures and, and that. So I have those two rules. But um, at the time, my favorite meat in Cameroon, and it was not endangered at the time, was a pangolin. Pangolin is a scaly anteater. Um, yeah. And it is absolutely delicious, man. It's probably the best thing I've ever eaten. It's like fine pork. But at the time, okay, this was not endangered. All right, shortly after that, in recent times, all the pangolins have become endangered. Even all the, the sub-Saharan tree pangolins and ground pangolins have become endangered, largely due to the meat and pet trade, to South, uh, meat and medicine trade, sorry, to, to Southeast Asia. So it got... In someone's mind, okay, the scales of this scaly anteater, they'll, you know, they're like wiener potency, these sorts of things to, you know, make people virile. And then after after I was in Cameroon, those scales started getting ex- exported to uh, to markets in, in Southeast Asia and, and Asia, and the, the animal numbers plummeted, these pangolins, and uh, they got on the endangered species list. But... I always say the pangolins got three strikes about it to my class. I show pictures of this because I, I, I give examples about endangered species management, global endangered species management. The pangolin's a good thing. So pangolin is delicious um, for, for, for its detriment. Now its scales are used as medicine. And the third thing, it is easy as all get out to catch. It just is in a tree. You hit it with a stick. It rolls up. So it rolls up like a, not like an armadillo, but like a roly-poly or something, you know? And he just yeah, yeah. So that guy, unfortunately, all those pangolins got three strikes against him. And I'm not surprised they're on the endangered species list, but man, they are, they are tasty. I'd never eat one again. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why pangolin is like ringing a bell for me. I don't know if, if are they a sort, 
was there something that there was there some zoonosis issue with pangolins at some point or maybe they might just have weird genitals i don't know i, I do so many of these shows there's like the weird facts that i know about things get confused in my mind but i'm sure they carry interesting like, for some reason that diet of only like termites and ants just turns in this delicious interesting <laughs> so, so, uh, well, so that's probably the best thing i've uh, probably the yeah, that was, a, well, that was a delicacy, and it was well, a delicacy in the community as well. The, the, this is the other thing that I wanted to ask you again, not your research, just a personal mm-hmm. adventure question. Um, as someone that's traveled a lot, I, I, I like trying a lot of different local cuisine and stuff, but I also, you know, eat in restaurants. So I'll go to mm-hmm. high-end things and have a menu and pick the thing. It, but I've also I've done some episodes about satiation and eating and and why our taste preferences are the way that they are. What what is it like not having a choice in what you eat? I guess we've all been children and just eat what our parents. But but what is it like being like? Well, here's what's on the menu. This is what got hunted today. Here's what or this is what got gathered. Whatever. This is what we're. This is what we're eating. You have no choice. Did it make the experience of eating more pleasurable or uh, less? Well, I would say um, it actually, I would say it relates a little bit back to community. So these were very low income families I'm working with. And yes, people go and hunt, but they did sell a lot of the meat. So the meat and, and a cartridge cost money. So it did cost a lot, whether that's, whether that's manpower or, or the actual equipment to go and, to go and find meat. And if you were ever, if I was ever served domestic meat, that's where it actually became more of more of a uh, sort of a cultural thing. Um, when I was ever served domestic meat, they had to specifically go out and get a chicken or kill a chicken that maybe they would have kept for eggs or kept for a rainy day when someone got sick and sell it. So if a farmer had me buy and you know had bush meat, and we'd all sit together and you know and 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 eat our eat our meals together. The, uh, whatever the meat was, was whatever came up, but all the other food was pretty much the same. So everyone ate this big thing of starch, a little bit of uh, green vegetables, and then some sort of meat stew. And that was our staple in the area. So the, the, the meals didn't really change all that much. Occasionally you get different things. So I just got used to to eating those, but the, the, the trickier thing became, and uh, the U.S. Peace Corps is actually really good with their, with their cultural training and things to be sensitive of, of people and what it costs to make food, especially special food. So occasionally farmers, after I'd do a farm visit and maybe do some tree planting with them, they'd have me back to the house and I'd have a, they'd, they'd kill a chicken or something along those lines. And I knew that this was kind of a big deal. It doesn't happen very often. They kill a chicken. Usually you just eat a small piece of bush meat or dried fish or whatever's on the, on the menu. But part of that chicken, part of the, part of the, uh, the, the most treasure or the most, res- the, the, what, what the Cameroonians thought where I was, the, the best part of the chicken uh, was the gizzard. Mm. And I don't like organs no. at all. I've it tried is. everything. I've tried liver over and over again, and I've tried, it's the texture and sort of the grain. And oh, I've tried yeah. it but I always got the gizzard. So I had a strategy. Either I would eat it, but I don't want to eat it because I have a very expressive face, and I, would, you know, I don't want to be pulling a face because everyone knows when you don't like to eat something, you have to do yeah. that. But if I was able to, um, you know, I came up with a strategy. So there usually is a, 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 a grandma or a grandpa there. And I always say, no, 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 this is, you know, you are the, this, this is your, I may be the respected guest, but, it, you know, it's your, it's your privilege and right to have this. And usually they take it. And then, you know, sometimes laughter is always, you know, it's a universal thing. So yeah, I could make some joke about me having a weak stomach or something like that and, yeah, yeah. and get around it. But 
Yeah, very nutrient rich. Those those organs. Yeah. That that you would think that that that's what uh, the, you know the lion makes the kill. It goes for that. Goes for those organs first and foremost. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that's it's. I can't I can't stand liver or whatever either. <laughs> what, what so. So the, well, that's an interest. What was another? Uh, again, not your research, yep. but I I just think, um, it, it, doing something like joining the Peace Corps sounds like such a cool thing um, to do. I I had a high school friend that did it as well, um, and maybe if we have some younger listeners, uh, we'll inspire them to think about maybe doing something like this and traveling abroad. What was? What was I'd like to know what your favorite place that you've kind of been in terms of research mm-hmm. um and then what were some of the hardest th- like that was a very good example but what were some what were some of the hardest things to get used to Sure yeah so that my my favorite place in the world is is it's 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 always been Tanzania and I, I this is mm-hmm. a thing from a an early childhood experience like I said, I grew up in a very rural community in Scottsville, Virginia, and we used to go to the library to watch movies. And I watched a documentary on the Serengeti and the wildebeest migration and all that and just fell in love, was over the moon, never thought I'd be able to get to see that. So I was um, posted in, in, in Africa, the Cameroon, which is West Africa. Tanzania is on the other side of the continent in, in East Africa. And my parents really wanted to come over and visit me in Cameroon to, um, to see some sites, see some wildlife, whatnot. Um, but I actually suggested, hey, you know, I, I've always wanted to go to Tanzania. Why don't you guys meet me in Tanzania? And we went to Tanzania and had the, the atypical, just brilliant safari. Went down to Ngorgor Crater, saw cheetahs and lions and elephants and everything. And there's, we're camping out there. There's bush pigs running around the camp at night, just having this wonderful, wonderful Tanzania experience. And I was like, well, you know, gosh, I'd, I'd love to come back here someday. But the, in the conservation world, everyone wants to go work in Tanzania um, mm-hmm. and everyone wants to go and, and have the job in, in Serengeti or wherever. But funny enough, so uh, after I finished my master's and got married, um, my wife and I actually applied for jobs in Tanzania with the Frankfurt Zoological Society and we got them and we're actually able to live and work in Mahali Mountains National Park, which is in very far western Tanzania. But the, uh, the headquarters for our NGO was in Serenera, which is in the middle of the Serengeti National Park. So whenever the boss would call up and want a meeting, um, we were there in a heartbeat. And it was such, it was, it was, oh my God, that, that job in, in Tanzania was, oh, my wife and I, some of our favorite, favorite memories. And probably, you know, that, that is definitely some of the more incredible things that I've done in the, my, my favorite places in the world. Hmm. When it comes to difficulty, oh my gosh, what did we do one time? So as I was working in, uh, after I, finished um, my Peace Corps work. I was working with WCS in that sanctuary. And they, we were, they, the, the government of Cameroon was looking at starting, uh, putting some new parks in the country. So, but they really wanted to get a better handle on some of the natural resource use, which included bushmeat hunting. So me and my, uh, my counterpart who did this hunting study with me in, in Southwest Cameroon, they asked us to go to Central Cameroon and get into this national park and interview hunters and see what kind of bushmeat was coming out. And he and I got into a, a literal dugout canoe, okay, from a tree. And it's just a dugout tree trunk. And you're sitting yeah. there with a, one guy in the back, one guy in the front, pulling it up this very, very dangerous river. <laughs> yeah. For two days, I sat on my, 
my waterproof camera box going up this river to try to get to this park, stopping every once in a while at, at random hunting camps, which are fine. The hunters were always great and fun to talk to because um, I could speak some local languages and whatnot. But uh, that was very trying. And we're going sometimes close to the edge. There's lots of venomous snakes that could maybe drop in from the trees. And thankfully, it didn't happen to us into the wow. into the dugout canoe. Um, but I would say with me and me and David and Zwango, we did our, our our three or four day expedition up into this new national park they were looking at, at, at putting at, at gazetting or you know making it official. Um, that was probably my most trying adventure was was going up that river for two days in a dugout canoe and they are not stable. You think of just a regular like old town canoe is tippy? Uh-uh. <laughs> you gotta sit perfectly perfectly still in these dugouts or you're going. A over T, as the Brits would say, as my wife would say, into the river. And thankfully, we did not tip that canoe on the way oh, up. Wow. Yeah, that's there's this there's this great documentary. I think it's called Happy People. And it's just about this dude that lives in like Siberia or something by himself. And it's just like him and a dog and an axe. And he's just this like his life is just insane and just just living each day. And it, it there was a there was a scene and he just like takes an ax, cuts down a tree, carves it out with the ax by himself, and then just starts using the ax to paddle up this tree and stuff. They're like, wow. Um, it's that's... not safe, those canoes, man. There, it was, that, was, that was an adventure, but, man, I, I was, yeah, great for my uh, life a few times on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds, uh, sounds fun. I love a good adventure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's intense. All right, so... As we start wrapping up, um, a, a couple things. One, if you want to mention anything else about Bushmeat, but I, I was specifically, I was kind of curious um, about uh, if in in these areas what what um, what kind of the, the human expansion, the the influence of human expansion and and biodiversity loss. Uh, of is having in regions like that some of the impacts yeah that's the trouble is we have you know uh, the so uh, many people so many people and, and then it's increasing so sub-saharan yeah. africa and, and asia starting to plateau a bit but projections for sub-saharan africa still show the most rapid population growth on the planet and that's, yeah. that's that will eventually slow but we're, we're yet to plateau so all those people gotta eat okay so people have to eat and the, that is the biggest you know a lot, of, a lot of folks, when I, you might say in class, um, I talk about biodiversity loss and where are the drivers of biodiversity loss and, and students. So they'll go to like, oh, urbanization and this. And that's a little bit. But no, it takes so much land to put food in our mouths. Mm-hmm. That is still and it's always been the number one issue with biodiversity loss. So um, gosh, where are those going with that? But um, so yeah just figuring out how to manage because we're also going to talk about food insecurity as well so that is our biggest challenge is you know i think is feeding the world and then the resulting biodiversity loss so our agricultural expansion we need to get that under control um and we need to be more efficient and effective at the agriculture we we do um there's a lot of inefficient agriculture all over the world so we we need to do something about this because Projected population growth is it's just as scary when the population bomb was written, whenever it was, back in the 60s or 70s. Uh, so we really need to get a handle on this. Um, and when it comes to bushmeat and biodiversity loss, 
one thing I've, I've learned is, you know, I was dependent on bush meat, on hunted game for my personal life. You know, that, that's what, that was the protein I was, was available to me. And that's what I needed to, to get by. So I just, you know, it, it's hard for me sometimes when I talk about it in the States or talk about it to, to Western audiences. Why don't they just do what we did? You know, put rules on people and make them stop hunting. I'm like, no, guys, people got to eat. You know, what yeah. else are they going to eat? I, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's what's there. So right. just to go around and tell people, no, don't do this, don't hunt. You're killing the biodiversity that I saw on, on, on planet Earth. That's not a solution. And it's the easy one that all of us go to. And it's the same thing you see on you, know, you see social media. People get, get really bent out of shape about trophy hunting, but they don't understand the issues. People get really bent out of shape about seeing these small animals being eaten. But, you know, there, there are people that are, are quite, are very, have a very much of a, <laughs> of a way lower income than you do and are quite hungry because they have to work their butts off, not sit in a chair all day. For you to sit on social media and, and tell people what to do, that this simple solution exists, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing to come across. It's a hard reality of how, how, the, how, the, how the world is. But we just need to get better at how we feed people because that's going to continue to be the number one reason why we're intruding into areas and worrying about zoonosis cross crossovers from, from wildlife, but then also just cutting down forest and affecting climate from deforestation. Do these cultures eat insects at all? Oh, I've... yeah, some do. <laughs> That's one of my but, favorite cause... times of insects, man. Uh, termite day in, uh, in, 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 the, in my village in Cameroon, that was one of the best days. So the termites um, will all emerge at one time. And they'll yeah. fly out, go into a new colony. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing. You have to have an entomologist on to figure out what they're doing. I've, I've, I've had in, a lot. I've had <laughs> I've had many on in the past, and, <laughs> and some of them are evangelical about like this is what we need to do for <laughs> food security and stuff. We need to be eating more insects globally. I tell you, man, that was a festival when it came to the, the termite hatch day. That was like a, it was a party. We had everyone have put up some sort of. We didn't have electricity, but everyone put up either a battery or a, a gas powered lamp next to your next to your house like under your eaves and you have a white sheet behind it that would go into a bucket right and the termites would get attracted to that sheet and you get buckets and buckets of termites and a lot of times as they hit the sheet the wings would pop off so you didn't have the wing issue all that much or there were quite a few wings and then we just had a party stay up all night frying termites and eating them up it was they were delicious now <laughs> um other things yeah. i don't know you know it's not palatable for a lot of people to think about a cricket meal and all that it, it's it's a great protein source i don't know how if that could ever be you know large scale and acceptable by a good part of the part of the population um i i can't eat a lot of insects i'm a, a texture guy i've tried um palm grubs which are these uh, they're they're big grubby looking things and they were they've been fried up on sticks when i was in cameroon i tried one it's a texture thing it's not good to have that for me to have that pop of yeah. in your mouth <laughs> I, th I think it's going to be like insect protein powder power bars that sort yeah. of thing i think that's how you i think that's how you get them into people that's yeah so, i mean some of them are some are fun and, and you know, like the termites yeah. you know, fried up termites with some chili on them that's delicious man you, you, and you, right. you, anyone close their eyes and think they're eating popcorn or you know, just, just any sort of salty snack but right. when you start getting to those gooey ones are you going to eat them as critters that's 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 hard to do um <laughs> my wife ate part of tarantulas in, in cambodia when she was there and was not really into it very much i don't think yeah. i'm able to do that either
I've I've eaten some insects. They they weren't prepared very well, but some were okay. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I I would be curious in exploring it more. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I was just curious if that was a that was a part of the culture there. Maybe or it, not it, at it, all. With, with those, it was you know people would eat palm grubs, so they actively seek them out and then pull them out of palm trees and get mm. the palm grubs. But it wasn't that widespread. It was more of a snacky type thing. But yeah, so the the termite the termite emergence was was the was great yeah. um that was that was always a big festival of the community but yeah they, they, the, aside from that the, the, was not much um insect eating i don't know really don't know why just they weren't available or wasn't in the culture to eat them just curious yeah um so as, as we as we wrap up was there anything else that you wanted to cover or did we have any loose ends i think we i feel like we solved most of the world's problems uh <laughs> in in 90 minutes um but if if there was a, I mean, any other of your research that you wanted to explore, or if you just wanted to direct people toward any other um, resources, or you can just do none of those things, and I can thank you for being here, and we can wrap up. But yeah, well, no, I, th- I want to, you know, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, it's just if I want to say anything to your listeners, you know, just just take the time. Let's get out of this COVID thing where we're shout, like you said at the beginning, shouting each other on Twitter or behind our closed doors or, you know, whatever, get, you know, when it's safe and in a, in a good way, let's, let's get back out and start having a little bit more of this, this human interaction and, and looking into each other's eyes and having meaningful conversations um, with each other, you know, turn off the TV for a while, get away from the screen, you know, as Ron Swanson once said, get outside and stand in nature. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do for yourself. And there's nature all around you. There's nature in there's nature in, in big urban areas. There's nature in rural areas. There's nature everywhere. You can find it. It's very restorative, and it also, you know, builds this ethic in us that, you know, this is our planet. We share this one planet. We've got one shot, and we need to feed people sustainably, but then we also need to conserve it. So go out and enjoy some of it and get an appreciation for it. And please, you know, uh, do the right thing. Do the little bit that you can, whether that's changing your changing your light bulb or supporting a certain cause donating money somewhere taking a kid out fishing any of that just do, do what you can you know just 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 be a, be a good citizen we can get back to where we were we were cl- shut up close behind doors and it affected me badly i had bad mental health issues being in quarantine it was really difficult to teach students over the over zoom it's really mm-hmm. difficult to sit there in, in our individual boxes on tv so get back out there when it's safe um but it, you know you, you can always reconnect with nature even right now seeing an explosion in our outdoor activities and, uh, you know, just enjoy this planet. We're all in it together. Yeah. I mean, I'm a perfectly stable individual, so I can't really relate, but, um, but yeah, other than that, good. I'm, I'm completely insane. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, that's an important message. I, I, I hope that I do. I've, I was talking about, um, I, I mentioned, um, you know, having a holiday to celebrate the pandemics that we didn't have in a given year or whatever, Mm -hmm. but, but maybe there will be uh, like uh, environmental and one health ish kind of festivals and things like that coming, coming together locally and in places and ways of, ways of making, um, uh, uh, kind of the, the sharing of information and, and, uh, creating better policies and raising awareness in in fun ways where we're meeting in person more and that sort of thing in the future hopefully 
Yeah, man. Uh, Earth Day is still one of the biggest uh, global events that gathered people together. The original mm-hmm. Earth Day has been surpassed by the Black Lives Matter movement, but one of our biggest um, gatherings of people in the history of, of the West was based around Earth Day. And we were just, you know, the, the Earth got into a bad place. There was a lot of pollution going on, but a lot of people got together, got behind it, and then signed in a lot of them by Nixon himself, bipartisan, passed all this legis- great legislation we've tried to you know, use to, to conserve our planet. So maybe we can get back there one day. That would be, would be really nice to. Mm. All right. Well, well, thanks for all the work that you do, Adam Willick, Wilcox. And um, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to talk with your, I'll have to have your wife on here sometime. Um, yeah, she does a lot of white about- nose and she knows a lot more about that than me. So. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I love a good, uh, I love a good bat conversation. Um, well, it was uh, wonderful talking to you, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week.